0: Our scripture reading this evening is Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves... Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us together this evening to worship you, to hear you proclaim your word. And Father, we pray that through it you would call all of us to take refuge in your son, We pray that you would open our hearts to your word, that we may be receptive to it by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, last week I started with Psalm 1, and as you remember, we talked about the fact that Psalms 1 and 2 are the gateway to the Psalms. They are the Psalms that teach you how to pray the rest of the Psalms rightly. And Psalm 1 teaches you how to live as a regenerate person. For it says, happy are those who meditate on God's law day and night. Psalm 1 shows that there are two kinds of people. There are those who walk in God's ways and those who do not. Well, Psalm 2 also shows that there are two kinds of people. There are those who submit to the Lord's anointed king. And those who reject him and are destroyed. And so, Psalm 2 teaches you how to submit to the Lord's anointed king. And it teaches you that happy are those who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 also teaches you that the Psalms are not only individual prayers, they are prayers for all the people of God, all of those who submit to him as king. Now throughout history, the nations of the world have opposed the Lord and his King. And to this day, it is all too tempting to align yourself with those nations who oppose him. For being aligned with the nations, they promise power, they promise freedom, they promise happiness in their way of life. Yet Psalm 2 shows that the true way to happiness is to take refuge in the Lord's anointed king. And so, this psalm divides easily into four divisions. First, verses 1 through 3, that the nations resist the Lord and his anointed. Second, verses 4 through 6, the Lord overrules the nations and establishes his anointed. Third, Verses 7 through 9, the Lord gives the nations to his anointed. And fourth, verses 10 through 12, the Lord rewards those who take refuge in his anointed. So first, verses 1 through 3, Psalm 2 begins by raising a very pertinent question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate vainly or plot in vain? This word plot is the same word that we saw in in Psalm 1, they meditate on vain things. Where They meditate vainly just as the Psalm 1 person meditates on the law of the Lord. Now, the various nations may be opposed to one another in many things, but they are united in this. They meditate on empty things. Now, this is a different word from the word we find for vain in Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, that refers to a vapor, something that passes in a moment. But here, here the nations are obsessing themselves with things that are empty and worthless. And so we read on to find out what are these empty and worthless things with which they obsess themselves. It says, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's what the nations are meditating on. They are obsessed with their plan to take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. So arrogant as to think they can shake a stick at God and live to tell the tale. And again, their desire to oppose God is so great that they set aside their differences so that they can band together in this project. For they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is why the nations rage. Sin has twisted their thinking, for they regard God and his anointed as keeping them in slavery. They find God's righteous ways not to be liberating so that we may live as we should, but rather as chains restraining their freedom. Now this way of thinking has a long providence in history. Ever since the fall, the nations have banded together and opposed God and his ways. And this rebellion takes many forms. We read in Genesis 6, That prior to the flood, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Even after the judgment of the flood in Genesis 11, the people of the earth gather together to glorify themselves against God by building the Tower of Babel, elevating themselves so that they may say that they have attained heaven on their own. Throughout ancient Israel's history, the neighboring nations continually threatened her militarily and sought to corrupt her worship. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles pray this psalm as they respond to their persecution at the hands of the Jewish council. For they say that this persecution of Christians shows that Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, are against Jesus, the anointed son, most of all. So that now in this era of history, opposition to Christians, persecution of Christians, is persecution of Christ himself. As he says to, as he says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And yet, of course, we would be remiss to note what the apostles pray in response to this persecution. They pray, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The answer to persecution is not to back down, but to continue to trust in God and his word, as we read of in Psalm 1, to continue to meditate And to proclaim God's glories. And so to this day, governments throughout the world oppress God's people in an attempt to blot Christ out, whether overtly or less overtly. Even in our own land, God and his ways are opposed. As abortion is legal, sexual immorality is encouraged, and even those who say that they would protect the church would also guide her to compromise her testimony. And to compromise her sense of dependence on God alone. And yet, while the nations oppose God and His anointed, Psalm 2 shows that the answer is not to get a different earthly king, it's not to vote different people into office. For here in verses verses 4 through 6, the Lord provides His own response, He overrules the nations and establishes his anointed, as it says in verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. The Lord is the one who sits in the heavens, not here on earth. This speaks to his power, his wisdom, and his holiness. The only fit habitation for the Almighty is in heaven. And that tells you an awful lot about who it is that you're dealing with. And so he knows that the nation's plots are laughable. They're a joke. He mocks at them. Those who oppose God don't know who they're dealing with. They think in the ancient world, they think that they're dealing with some petty local god in a small part of the Fertile Crescent. A god of the hills who can be defeated. But they're not up against just some God of the hills. They're up against the God, and the maker and ruler of the universe. They're up against the source of being itself, not even just some powerful wizard, but the one from whom all existence owes its existence. This God is no one to be trifled with. Even to this day, God's word is thought of as coming from no God at all, These words are merely human words, and not even very good ones. God is judged, not as a petty, local, small God, but by modern standards, as though humanity has any right to stand in judgment of God. Now, we can acknowledge that God's people have not always applied his word as it ought to be applied. We ourselves have failed many times, nevertheless, the fault lies not with God, but with us. For God is faultless. and He is not mocked. So what does he say? He says that he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God responds to this mockery with words of his own. It reminds me of what happens in Daniel 7, where the beasts representing earthly kings wreak Havoc down on earth. And yet, what do, is the scene in heaven? We see the calm of a courtroom. While the carnage takes place down on earth, the books are opened and the judgment is pronounced. God is untroubled, unharassed by these things down on earth. All that it takes for him to deal with it is a word. And his word is terrifying for those who oppose him. What does he say? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord responds to the plots and devices of the nations by sticking by his king on Zion. Now in the history of Israel, the Lord established David and his descendants as the kings in Jerusalem. And he put his spirit upon the king's As we read in 1 Samuel 16, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David as he was anointed to be king over all Israel. And the Lord promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so when the king was faithful, ancient Israel put the neighboring nations into disarray even as the neighboring nations tried to attack Israel and put a stop to her. As soon as David was anointed and established as king in Israel, we read in 2 Samuel 6 that the Philistines pretty much immediately went up against him. The Philistines were opposed to God and his anointed king, and so they fulfilled what is is described here in Psalm 2. And yet, while the king was faithful, they were put into such disarray that they even left their idols behind on the battlefield in defeat. Some gods, so important that they would leave them behind. The nations have not changed God's plan in the least. His response to the, to the plots of the nations He has established his anointed on Zion, his holy hill. And so the nations rebel against God, and he sticks to his plan. And now in verses 7 through 9, we see who this king is and what he will do to the nations. For it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now the kings of ancient Israel remained, of course, human beings, but they were publicly held to be sons of God, human sons of God. As it says again in 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The kings of Israel were sons of God, and this points to the true fulfillment of the royalty of, of Israel in King Jesus. For God publicly declared Jesus to be his son at his baptism and transfiguration. But it goes beyond this. It goes beyond having a human king. For in Hebrews 1.5, we read that Jesus is higher than the angels. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Psalm 2 teaches that in Jesus, you have a divine king. You have a king who is the Son of God, as in He is God Himself. And also in Hebrews 5, we read that this passage means that this king is also your high priest. You have one who has been anointed to be your king and your priest. And being God, He has all power in His hands for the benefit of the church. And as priest, he has sacrificed himself for you so that he is your mediator when you put your trust in this king. You are not only a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, but you are forgiven all your sins and made a son or daughter of God. And so our divine anointed king is told, ask from me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, this passage is perhaps clarified by reading, I will make the nations your inheritance. Perhaps a little bit easier to understand there. The land of Israel was never going to be enough for King Jesus. The surrounding land was never going to be enough. And it's hard to say it. It's hard to believe it. But the United States is not enough for Jesus either. All the world is his. All the universe is his. And that's what he has gained for himself. God has made all the nations the possession of his son. The Lord is the creator and the owner of all the world. And he gives it to his son as his birthright. God's son deserves the entire universe, and he gets it. And so we read in Ephesians chapter 1 that Jesus has been placed over all the universe for the benefit of you, his church. And how did he get it? In verse 9 it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Judgment is coming. For those who persist in opposing the Lord and his anointed son. Those who oppose the son will be demolished like a clay pot that is smashed against the ground and shatters into a million pieces. Now so far in this psalm, the Lord has waged a war of words in verses 5 and 6. But one day the war will turn bloody. Now this kind of destruction has not yet come in this age. And thank God for that. For if it had, you would have perished. For defeat has not yet come in the history of the nations who oppose Jesus. But defeat has come for the chief enemy of God's people. For your enemy and his Satan and death have both been defeated on the cross and in a bloody way, but a surprisingly bloody way, through the death of the Son, through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus conquered them, not through the force of arms, but through suffering do- death himself. And so thanks to that atoning death, the Lord remains patient, and you have had time to repent. So that's why I say, thank God that this destruction has not yet come, for it has given you the opportunity to repent. You have the opportunity to turn to Jesus and to trust in his death, which is his victory over your greatest enemy. And what's more, if you trust in Jesus to the end, you will join in the conquering that is spoken of here in verse 9. For Jesus tells the church in Revelation 2 the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So if you put your trust in Christ, you will inherit the universe together with your King, Jesus. So the opportunity is put before all people to repent. As we conclude Psalm 2 with verses 10 through 12, where it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Those kings who have opposed the Son." Who have opposed the Lord and His anointed also have the opportunity to repent. And we have seen this happen, for consider Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. As in Daniel chapter 4, he acknowledges the Lord as the Most High, as the one whose dominion is everlasting. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that the Lord is above all spiritual powers, and he does not say these things privately. He publicly says them in a letter to his entire kingdom. He acknowledges the Lord to be most high. And so even the powerful, even the kings of great empires of history are called by God to submit to a power higher than themselves. They are not left merely to suffer the impending judgment for this warning is given because there is still time to repent. This psalm is a warning of what will happen for those who do not repent. And so there is the call given to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. God issues a public invitation to all people to serve the Lord, to have faith in him, To be glad that he will vindicate himself over his enemies. And that is your service to him. Your service to him is to rejoice in him, to give your sacrifice of praise. And so here in verse, in Psalm 2, we also have a wonderful example of what the fear of the Lord means. For in the fear of the Lord, you recognize that the Lord's threats are a call to repentance, that they are a warning. You fear his judgment, and so you are encouraged to turn to him in love so that you may not suffer the fate that he warns. And so the fear of the Lord leads not to cowering or to hiding from him, but to loving him and giving him your praise. As we see in verse 12, That those who serve the Lord, those who have that godly fear of the Lord, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now, kissing the Son in the ancient world is a gesture, recognizing him as king. And so all who have opposed him are called to repent. There is time to avoid this fate you still have the opportunity to turn to the Son and embrace Him in faith. As long as there is breath in your lungs, it is not too late. You still have the opportunity. Yet, you don't know how little time there may be. If you dawdle on the way before embracing Him, your time may run out. Well, isn't the Lord slow to anger, you might say, Yes, he is slow to anger. That's why he is patient, for he has not yet carried out judgment. So this, this phrase could probably be better translated, his wrath is suddenly kindled. He is patiently waiting to execute his judgment. But his return, his judgment will be sudden. And this word is all the notice that you will get. I'm reminded of Jesus' parables of the wicked servant and the ten virgins. Now, you know that the chapter divisions in our Bibles are not from the original text. So it's a little unfortunate that the wicked servant is at the end of Matthew 24 and the ten virgins at the beginning of 25. But anyway, at the end of 24, Jesus tells of this servant whose master has gone away on a long journey. And this servant turns to beating his servants and getting drunk. And what happens? The master returns sooner than he expects. He thought that he would have time to clean up his act. But he is dismissed when the master returns too early. As for the ten virgins, the five wise ones have brought extra oil with them so that when the bridegroom is delayed, they are ready to wait for him. They are ready to wait in faithfulness. And so they are welcomed into the wedding feast when he does appear. The wedding feast in that context is a symbol for the great feast at the day of the Lord. And so Jesus may come later than you expect. So be ready to persevere. But above all, remember this. If you trust in Christ, if you kiss the Son, as your king, God's wrath, which will be suddenly kindled, God's wrath has already been poured out on Jesus for you on the cross. Your judgment day has already come. And so happy are all who take refuge in him. There's that word that we talked about so much from Psalm 1 last week. Two different Hebrew words for God blessing people, giving them good things, and for the blessedness or the happiness or the joy that comes as a gift from God. And this is the word happy. We usually speak of it in English as being joy, as opposed to the happiness you get from uh, Christmas gifts. When you take refuge in the sun, you will find joy joy in him. For the nations belong to Christ, and he will destroy all those who oppose him. But he will save and redeem all of those who are his. And so Psalm 1 says there are two kinds of people. Those who meditate on the law of the Lord and turn to Christ will find joy in him, while those who do not will perish. Psalm 2 teaches that there are two kinds of nations. There are the nations of the world who rage against him and will be destroyed. But then there is God's holy nation under King Jesus. As it says in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is how you live out your national identity, by proclaiming God's excellencies and making disciples. As Jesus has said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, make disciples. That is his call to his church, to his kingdom, to make disciples As remember, the apostles prayed this psalm and concluded in Acts 4, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And so you see the mess that is made by the nations raging against God. But there is one way out of this mess, to take refuge in Christ, for you will find your joy in him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the joy that you give us in Christ, our Savior and our King. Father, we pray that you would be with us. Help us all take our appropriate place in the Great Commission as ambassadors of your kingdom. Father, we pray that you would be with us and help us to offer all praise and glory that is due to you. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.